I believe a sentence we will read today is the most influential sentence in history. There have been many influential statements. Martin Luther King, I have a dream. Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. George Washington's decision to not become the king of America, but instead to say, I retire now from the great theater of action. Former slave and abolitionist Frederick Douglass, when he said, what to a slave is the 4th of July? America has been shaped by well-crafted, powerfully delivered sentences. But not one of those or any like it can touch the three words we lift up today. He is risen. A Yale historian said this, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? For example, did you know the first legislation to publicly fund education way back in the American colonies was called the Old Deluder Satan Act? It was based on the idea that God would not want any child ignorant. And at the time, only children of the elite were educated. Jesus had concern for lepers, which made him unique in his culture. And his followers were inspired to do the same. And they formed institutions to care for those with leprosy. Those were the beginning seeds of what eventually sprouted into our modern day hospitals. I mean, we could spend this Easter to next Easter researching and tracing all the ways Jesus has affected history. And none of it would be possible without his resurrection. Because the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse seven, if Christ has not been raised, our faith is worthless. It's in vain. But he has risen and it changes everything. Let's look at how it changed the first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. Mark chapter 16, verse one. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. The resurrection changed these women changed them in a few ways. First, it changed their purpose. They showed up that morning at the tomb to anoint Jesus for permanent burial. Remember, Jesus was crucified between mid-morning and mid-afternoon on Friday. After he breathed his last breath on the cross, one of his disciples named Joseph, who was well-connected, went back into Jerusalem, appeared before the Roman governor Pilate and asked for Jesus' body so that Joseph could lay him in a tomb that he had. 
Pilate granted him permission. Joseph, with a friend named Nicodemus, began to wrap Jesus' body in cloths of linen that had been soaked in 75 pounds of spices. This is what the Jewish people did instead of embalming. But there was a ticking clock behind Joseph and Nicodemus because at sundown on Friday night, Sabbath was going to start. And there was a strict cultural adherence to the Sabbath practice of no work. So there wasn't time to go through the proper ceremony of laying Jesus to permanent rest. And the women wanted to correct that. So they went at the first available moment so he could have the burial that he deserved. But when they showed up, their purpose changed because the tomb was empty. There was no need for anointing. The resurrection of Jesus draws a line in the sand for our purpose before and after. For example, work. The purpose of work before we experience the resurrection is to what? To make as much money as possible so you can be as happy as possible, so your life can be as easy as possible, and so you can be as insecure as least possible. But once you experience the power of the resurrection, the purpose of your work changes. It's to provide for your family. It's to be a gospel influence. It's to contribute to God's plan for humanity. The purpose of marriage changes. Before you experience the resurrection, marriage is about fulfilling a hole that's inside of you. An invisible, internal drive, a need that pushes us towards romantic relationships. But after you experience the power of the resurrection, the purpose of marriage is to serve another person for the rest of your life in Jesus' name. The purpose of parenting changes because of the resurrection. Every parent in here knows the purpose of parenting in general is to build good, well-behaved children who are productive to society and who are financially secure. Some of you 25-year-olds, your parents are still working on that last part. But the resurrection changes the purpose of parenting. It's to build children who know the great joy of living for the great glory of the resurrected Christ. It draws a line in the sand for our purpose. It changed their purpose that morning. It changes our purpose. It also changed their perspective. We know these women loved Jesus. They had been following him for three years. Many of them had been supporting him financially so that he didn't have to have a normal job and could just focus on his ministry. The spices that they bought were very expensive. Also, it says a lot that they were willing to go and to do this burial process after a few days of death had passed. It also tells us that they had no expectation that Jesus would rise from the dead. You wouldn't go through the expense of the purchase or the emotional expense of the experience if you thought he was just going to come back from the dead. But after Jesus was raised, they understood what they had misunderstood. As you read the book of Acts, you see after Jesus was resurrected and ascended, the disciples, along with these women, viewed their lives totally different. Their perspective had changed. Because when you believe Jesus has risen from the dead, you get a new perspective. You get a new lens. And everything that you see and everything you do is filtered through that lens. How you see yourself, how you see other people, how you respond to other people, what makes you afraid, what makes you anxious. The resurrection also changed their plans. Remember, 
just a few days before this, these women were among the crowds walking along Jesus as he triumphantly prayed into Jerusalem last Sunday, known as Palm Sunday. The crowds were shouting, Hosanna, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They believed that the triumphal entry of Jesus would end in triumph. They believed that he was the Messiah. They believed that once he got into Jerusalem, he would somehow bring the Roman government down and he would become king, blessed by God with wisdom, power, and authority. And it would be a new day for God's people, Israel. They had dedicated the last three years of their lives to these ideas. But the triumphal entry did not result in triumph. It resulted in arrest. It resulted in torture. It resulted in crucifixion. In their minds, as they're on their way to the tomb, Jesus is dead. What are they going to do with their lives now? Do they return home? Is it business as usual? Whatever their plans were after they anointed Jesus that day, their plans changed. They received instructions from the angel. Go and tell the disciples. He will meet you in Galilee. They had a hope. They had a future. All of us have a plan for our lives. Maybe you've written yours down in a locked diary somewhere hidden underneath your mattress. Or maybe it's just something that you imagine. But you know what you want your life to be like five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now. You've imagined what you will do. You've imagined what you will be like. You've imagined what you will have. So I want you to pull that out right now out of your memory. Maybe some of you have your journals and you've written it down somewhere. But pull it out of your mind. I want you thinking about it. Who you will be, what you will do, what you will have, where you will be. As you're thinking about it, does the resurrection of Jesus even matter? Meaning, when you think about what you want to do with the rest of your life, could you do that thing in the way that you want to do it, whether Jesus had been raised or not? When you think about the person that you want to be five years from now, 10 years from now, could you be that person, whether or not Jesus was in that tomb or not? Because if you believe that they found an empty tomb that day, our plan should be different. They did find an empty tomb, but they also left with some instructions. And I believe those directions are still good for us today. If you're following along in your listening guide, these would be good things to write down. First, the angel tells them to believe. Verse six. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Now, believing Jesus was alive was an unspoken but inherent command in the angel's message. There were other options for them. By Sunday lunch on that first Easter Sunday, the religious opponents of Jesus had already come up with a theory to spread around that the disciples had stolen his body. They could have believed something else, but the angel wanted them to believe his word that Jesus had been resurrected. Believing by faith in the resurrection is a necessary component of being a follower of Jesus. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, But believing in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You cannot deny the resurrection and be a follower of Jesus. You can be an admirer of Jesus, but you can't be a follower. Believe. Second direction, see for yourself. That's what the angel said. Verse six, he is risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him. Jesus is not intimidated by investigations. A few years ago, Amanda and I received by mail 
a minimally marked envelope from Ogden, Utah. If you're wondering, what's in Ogden, Utah? A branch of the IRS is in Ogden, Utah. (laughs) You do not want mail from Ogden, Utah. I mean, even those three initials, IRS, give you heart palpitations and set in panic. You wouldn't wish an audit from the Internal Revenue Service on your worst enemy. Maybe your worst enemy, but not your second worst enemy. (laughs) Thankfully, that's not what was happening to us that day. But that's what we were afraid of, an audit. All of us would be afraid of an audit because we would think maybe we wouldn't hold up under the investigation. They're gonna ask us a question that we don't know the answer to. They're gonna wonder about an expenditure that we didn't even make. They're gonna ask for some receipts that we didn't even know that we were supposed to keep. They're gonna ask for seven years worth of pay stubs and you don't have seven days worth of pay stubs. We're afraid we won't hold up under the investigation so we don't wanna be audited. Jesus is not afraid of that. If you are a doubter today, if you are a skeptic, if you are wondering about the evidence, audit him. Fact check his faithfulness. Analyze his claims. He's not afraid of your investigation. Now, it would be good to know that many people in an effort to audit Jesus end up auditing his followers instead. We will not hold up to the investigation. We will not pass the test. We are not perfect and we don't get it perfect. We won't hold up, but he will. And here's the full picture. As you and I seek the truth, he is seeking us. When my grandfather and grandmother were married, my grandmother was a a Christian, but my grandfather was not. She was faithful, faithful woman. Saint Wanda, that's what she was. Baptists don't do saints, but if they did, she would be the first one nominated. She used to get up every Sunday morning to go to church and he would never go with her. And after years of this, this really started to get under his skin that she was so good. She was so righteous. She was so goody goody. So one Sunday morning while she was getting ready for church, he snuck out into the driveway, lifted up the hood, removed some important pieces from the engine. So when she got in, the car wouldn't start. But she loved him anyway. She prayed, she prayed, she prayed for him. One day there was a knock on their door. It was a friend from work said to my grandfather, I'd like to come in and talk to you about a few things. And in their living room, that man began to share the gospel with my grandfather about the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. My grandfather ended up committing his life to Christ. A generation later, my mother did the same thing. She was a Christian, my father was not. But she prayed for him, she prayed for him, she prayed for him. One day my dad was out in the garage, outside in the driveway working on something. His neighbor happened to be outside as well. That neighbor was a student at the local Bible college. Came over, started to talk. And there in the driveway, he shared the gospel with my father, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. My father ended up committing his life to Christ. Because while we're seeking truth, truth has a way of knocking on the door and coming over. God makes it personal. Audit him. Check your facts. But it doesn't matter how many books you read. It doesn't matter how many claims you validate. There will still be a moment where you have to believe, where it will have to be by faith. And we call that faith a leap. 
Last summer, we were in Missouri visiting my family and we decided to go to the lake for the day and rent a boat. And this particular lake is very beautiful, has a few cliffs that you can jump off of into the water. And that sounded fun to us. And so we boated over towards those cliffs. Jackson wanted to jump, and I wanted to jump. And so we dove in the water, swam over, started climbing up. And there are three ledges at this particular place that you can jump off. There's a 10 foot ledge, there's a 20 foot ledge, and there's about a 30 foot ledge. And I was thinking we would warm up. 10 foot first, 20 foot, 30 foot. As we're climbing up, a 13 year old middle school kid, God bless him, just shimmies right up. And I start praying. God, let him go to the 10 foot ledge. Because whatever he does, I'm gonna have to do one higher than that. Because my wife is in that boat and I would still like to impress her. My son is next to me and I would like to impress him. My dad is in that boat and I want him to think that I am a man. My brother-in-law is in that boat. So whatever the middle school kid does, I have to amp it up. And I kind of wanted to warm up, but no, you know how the story goes. He goes straight for the highest one because he's too young, young to be smart. And so there I am at the 30 foot ledge looking over. And that doesn't sound very tall to us today while we're standing on dry ground. But when you're the one peering over, it's higher than it sounds. And it is a leap of faith because you have to have faith that the water is deep enough to be good for you, that there's nothing under the surface. There's no tree, there's no stump, there's no other part of the cliff. The reality is, is no matter how much you fact check Jesus, whatever the results of your audit, there'll still be a moment where you have to leap. There'll still be a moment where by faith you have to say, I don't have all my questions answered and everything is not totally resolved inside of me. But I believe that these women found an empty tomb. And so I'm gonna leap. Believe, but see for yourself, the angel says. Number three, the resurrection has happened. Now what? Go and tell. He says in verse seven, but go tell his disciples and Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee. The angel says, go tell the disciples and Peter. The last time we saw the disciples as a group, they were running away in fear. Jesus had been praying in the garden of Gethsemane and a mob came for him. He had told those disciples, if you wanna save your life, then lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. They forgot that and they ran away to save their own lives. And Peter, Peter was the worst. Peter had fled with the other disciples, but then later on that evening when Jesus is being tried and falsely convicted, Peter is out in the courtyard of the court pretending he doesn't even know Jesus. Three times he denies him. Betrayal of the deepest kind. If Jesus is willing to extend a message of grace to the disciples and especially Peter, then he extends that message of grace to everyone and especially you. I'm the kind of person that wishes I didn't need grace. I wanna get it right, the right way, the right thing, the right time, every time. I wanna treat grace like a backup parachute skydiving. I got it if I need it, but it's my goal to not need it. 
But the scripture says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, but all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us needs Jesus to say, go and tell the disciples and Curtis and Heather and Trevor. It's for everyone and it is especially for you. Jesus' extension of grace to the disciples and Peter was an opportunity for a different ending for them. Imagine if Jesus was dead in that tomb. Forever, the disciples would have been haunted by the fact that their last experience with him was running away in fear. Peter's last memory would have been saying, I swear to God, I don't know this man, Jesus. Would he have ever been able to shake that? His story would have ended in shame. There is a responsibility that falls to all those who believe in the resurrection of Jesus. To go and tell people that they can have a different ending to their story. That shame doesn't have to be the end of their story. That disappointment doesn't have to be the end of their story. That hopelessness doesn't have to be the end of their story. That addiction doesn't have to be the end of their story. That alcoholism doesn't have to be the end of their story. That depression doesn't have to be the end of their story. Jesus has been raised. We all get a different ending. We get a gospel ending, a good news ending that none of us deserve, an ending of hope, an ending of peace, an ending of joy, an ending of redemption. If the resurrection truly changes everything and it's available to everyone, then you and I have a responsibility to tell everyone. Go and tell, the angel said, the disciples and especially Peter. Number four, the resurrection has happened. Now what? Expect to see him. Verse seven. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Jesus met the disciples in Galilee. He will meet us in the clouds. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Listen to these words from Jesus from John chapter 14, verse one. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. On Easter Sunday, he just appeared to a handful of people. One day he'll appear to all of us. After his resurrection, he spent 40 days with his closest disciples. We get something better than that. We will always be with him, 1 Thessalonians 4 says. And when he returns, he's prepared a place for us. We're not unexpected guests. We are prepared for friends. And finally, the tomb is empty. Now what? Remember what he has said. Verse seven, but go and tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. He had spoken to them plainly about his resurrection. Earlier in Mark chapter 14, verse 28, he said, after I have been resurrected, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Now I can't imagine him being any plainer than that, any clearer. I'm gonna be resurrected. This is where I will meet you. But they didn't understand. 
like the women that day, we need to remember what he has said. You know, the world is weary of us being only self-righteous hearers. We need to shorten the distance between hearing and doing. When we say we believe, but don't practice, it's hard for other people to believe that we believe it. We become like the disciples in what James called forgetful hearers. Because there's a miracle missing between the hearing and the doing. A miracle of understanding. Jesus had spoken plainly to his disciples about his resurrection and where he would meet them, but they didn't understand it. As we attempt to remember the things that Jesus has said, we need to pray, God, would you give me understanding? Because the reality is, between this Easter and next Easter, all of us will accuse God of being silent. All of us will wonder why he's not answering our prayers. All of us will wonder where his voice has gone. It may be that he has spoken plainly to us. We've just failed to understand it. He is risen. It's changed everything. We asked a few people in our church family what the resurrection of Jesus has meant to them personally. Listen to how our friend Natalie answered that question. Only with the risen Jesus could I have found peace after the suicide of my husband and hope for redemption and restoration of my whole life, which includes abandonment by my own father, divorce of my parents, death of a grandfather who was like my father, alcoholism in my family, emotional abuse, and the suicide. Only the risen Jesus could restore and redeem a marriage between a living woman and a dead man. I have a peace that only comes from him that my husband and I have worked out the hurts and the betrayals that existed in our marriage after death. If Jesus had stayed dead, then I wouldn't have the spirit that has walked me through the complete healing of my heart and soul. I wouldn't have access to knowing that I have been completely forgiven of my part of the failed marriage. And I wouldn't be able to see past my own guilt and shame. I would be stuck in the never-ending cycle of could-haves, should-haves, and would-haves. If Sunday had never come, the suicide would be the end of the story and the legacy he left for his children. But Sunday came, and with it the hope that generational curses of fatherlessness four generations on both sides can and will be broken. Through their father's suicide, my children have a front row seat to redemption and restoration because it is our story. They get to see Jesus working in our lives every day and he is their father who co-parents with me now. He has risen, the most influential words ever spoken. They've changed everything. Question we need to answer today, have they changed me? Let's pray. spirit of prayer, why don't you take just a few seconds and ask God directly in light of the resurrection, what are you asking me to do? Amen. Why don't you stand to your feet? 
We're going to finish our service this morning by sharing communion together. I'm going to ask those who are serving it to take their places now. When you come to take communion, you are making a declaration. When you rip the bread, you are declaring that the broken body of Jesus is what you need. When you dip the bread into the cup, you are declaring that the blood of Jesus is what you need for forgiveness of your sin. It's a declaration that you're making. Maybe there's many with us this morning, you would say, well, I I didn't know that I was making a declaration that wasn't on the Easter invitation. I, I didn't come prepared for that. Do you believe that those women found that tomb empty that day? If so, would you commit your life to Christ? Would you become a follower of Jesus? You know, salvation is impossible for us. It's only made possible because of Jesus. But it's also so simple that even our youngest children can understand. Reminds me of the ABCs. A, admit. Admit you need Jesus. It's hard for us to admit any need in our culture. We do our best and we spend a lot of money to project the opposite of that to everyone we know. Admit. Believe. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. See, confess. Confess him as Lord. Jesus is not just an insurance policy that takes you straight to heaven. He is Lord of all. And if you can do those simple steps, A, B, and C, then you are making your declaration. I do believe in Jesus. I declare now that I am a Christ follower because I believe that there is an empty grave without his bones outside of Jerusalem. So Jesus, we ask that you would make this time of communion holy. We do it in remembrance of you remember your sacrifice. We remember your blood. We revere you and celebrate you now. We ask these things in your name. Amen.